and welcome to episode two of season four of the Session Nerds podcast. I'm your host for tonight, Peter, along with my beautiful, illustrious, talented, talented, punctual, punctual, well-prepared co-hosts. Go ahead and say your names, gentlemen. I'll keep these adjectives going in the meantime. <laughs> you forgot industrious. You said punctual. We're not Glamorous. The intro. Glamorous. There's one. Right, that there doesn't describe everybody. That's, you know. No, only certain people. It's a, certain well sub, fed. Subgroup. Well fed. There, That describes at least one of your. Uh, nearly, sure. nearly one. <laughs> Dan from Los Angeles. And Jason from Southeastern United States. Some would call it Florida. Well, <laughs> Welcome back this week, gentlemen. And tonight we're going to be covering chapters five and six of Foundation's Edge, Speaker and Space. Not in that order. <laughs> Let's start with the first chapter that we hit, and then maybe yeah. the next. That's so, so close. Sp- you were pitching space, me shot. Space and Speaker. None of the above. <laughs> I read my chapters in random order. This makes the podcast so much more interesting. So uh, just a little secret for our listeners. I often, to avoid reading ahead, I read backwards from time to time. (laughs) (laughs) Peter has a a Talmudic version of the Foundation's Edge, and he reads from the back cover to the front. So sometimes he gets very Uh, And right to left. Do we have any fan mail this week, gentlemen? You know, Peter, I I think we're, uh, we're just getting going. Um, so it's a little dry. The river's a little dry right now, but let's, uh, let's keep going with our, uh, with our season and see if that elicits anything. I mean, honestly, we did it to ourselves. We've kept our listener, uh, starving for new content for so long. We did. So we did. hopefully we can, uh, bait our one listener back to listening again. <laughs> well, I do know that our master of summaries has a summary for us. So Treviz and Pellerat board their space cruiser for departure on their journey. Trevise attempts to familiarize himself with the control system and is absorbed within the immersive computer controls. In an attempt to reassure his shipmate, he engages Pellerat in a tour of the galaxy using the ship's onboard computer. Meanwhile, first speaker Quinder Shandes revisits the history of the Selden plan in preparation for a meeting with Stor Jendabal. Jendabal is given a tour of the Prime Radiant acre by acre. Afterwards, he presents his theory that a group of anti-mule figures is intervening aside the Second Foundation with possibly grave consequences in the future. Now, just to clarify for our listener, did you do the summary of five, then four, or was that four, then five? That was uh, in chronological order. Okay. So space but they're entirely speaker. standalone chapters, so you could you could also record it backwards. Well, any interesting observations with this, uh, with this first chapter that you guys want to bring up? Yeah, I, I mean, I thought the whole computer, it's what? 1982, the the detail he goes into in terms of how the computer, what the computer is, how it works, yeah. um, is sort of, I mean, he literally spends 80% of the chapter going through. Talking about how cool yeah. this computer is. Yeah. He should have called the chapter computer yeah. in space. That would have been a better name. You yeah. should go back in time and tell Isaac to uh, rename his chapter. Should have called it Space Bar instead of Space. Ooh, there you go. I, li- nice. I love that. <laughs> It's almost like a neural link, the way the computer works, right? You put your hands on the desk. It felt very Johnny Mnemonic for me, which uh, is a 1990s dystopian film based off of William Gibson, another sci-fi writer's uh, short story. 
But we're seeing a lot of that kind of similar technology today with like the meta goggles that are coming available from what was Facebook and and the hand gloves um, and VR technology. And it's interesting that he was able to describe this technology like before, you know, it even existed. And it's very imaginative. Uh, the one thing that I think that we haven't achieved so far is like, you know, that true neural link where your thoughts um, are instantaneously communicated to a computer. And it seems like a natural outcropping out of what was in the last book with the brainwave detection devices that, you know, showed the flats where someone's, you know, brain activity had been modified. Um, And so it's interesting to see how the technology has evolved. Well, before we even get there, I mean, the the chapter starts and they're sort of, you know, they haven't even boarded the ship and and Pillarat is going on about, uh, well, you can just access any computer in the world without leaving your chair. Like, you know, there's no reason for you to even leave. And he gets his room with like his computer reader. And then we've talked about floppy disks before and he holds up his square wafer 20 centimeters uh, to the side basically it's like i don't know if it looks like it's 20 by 20 which basically puts it at about you know eight inches by yes. eight inches is basically like you know bigger than five and a quarter it's like not quite the full big like 10 inch floppy i guess like 81 vintage is probably like he thinks like oh eight by eight yeah that's that's small enough to hold it's like 20 you know. percent smaller than it's a 10 so by much 10, smaller yeah. it's encased in, it's encased in silvery plastic but at the same time it has the entire library his entire library right. indexed by subject matter and origin so that's my favorite part i've got it all into one wafer <laughs> one tiny wafer it's wafer thin my, it's wafer thin. my whole library is wafer thin marvelous <laughs> A whole library. I have everything. And then he gives them the old, well, we are swimming in cream. And then wraps it up the first section. You know, I I think it helps kind of like the people a little bit because it makes them not be like, this guy's a total zero. They're not just a name. 350 pages, like reading along with the boringest man in the universe. Um, (laughs) Can't even make a sandwich. Can't even make a sandwich. It's getting sent on, you know, worthless errand boy, like trying to find a bucket of steam. I guess thinking back on it, maybe Beta's husband wasn't such a dunce. It just was animated by a really poor Arthur. I'm not a two dimensional character. I'm just a regular character drawn by an author with a (laughs) (laughs) animated by a person who's not very good. So going back to like the actual characterization of, you know, uh, Golan and Janoff. Janoff has like a panic attack almost like during the chapter where mm-hmm. he starts to freak out about leaving home for the first time. He's like, well, what about if we get hit by a meteor or, you know, what if the, you lose control of the ship? Like, what do we do? And, and Golan, you know, Trevise, however you want to call him. You, Golan to you. Cause you are obviously on a first name basis. With yeah. Them. Golan and I are, are G's, right? <laughs> Golan like calms him down. And I felt like that was a really humanizing uh, event. Cause so far we've just seen Travis be like super cocky and mm. like, you know, he knows what's going on and he's affronted and he's just like, he just comes off as kind of a arrogant jerk. Uh, mm-hmm. We all know that there's only room for one arrogant jerk on this podcast. No wonder you did you had such a first name basis with him. Cause <laughs> nice. I like the cut of that guy's jib. <laughs> Me and this guy, we're the same. condescending, all powerful. Right. 
familiar with the internet? Yes, he's got it all. So he uh, he sits down with the guy and like tries to calm him down. He's like, look, you know, chances of being hit by a meteor is like so infinitesimal. Like you don't have to worry about it. He appeals uh, to his rational self, right, with the probabilities and yeah, like you'd have to live a million would, lifetimes or whatever he says. We would have to get hit by four in different directions to even remotely have to worry about this. Yeah, no, and, and he basically then he goes in to try to operate the computer. And uh, yeah, like you mentioned, you mentioned before, it's like there were computers and there were computers. And he clearly like, you know, <laughs> there's some he makes the comment like he remembers with a sinking feeling the volumes taken up by a fully described program and printout. And he would recall the behavior of technical sergeant Krasnett at the console of the ship's computer, like literally the the, the pre the pregenitor for, you know, what is a computer? And he's just like dot matrix printer spitting out just like lines of code and punch just, cards, just ridiculous. Like a yeah, punch cards, and so much switches and, you know, it's like literally like, you know, I mean, it. 1981 is probably like you know two years ago in terms of i don't know when you're you're like thinking like apple 2e or whatever these computers came out in the early 80s and before that the personal computer was like just a room and he's got a little little further ahead to where you know it's it's a full sort of neural uh link thing that peter's talking about but then he starts to use it and he's like well he's he kind of shares a little bit of pellerat's concern he's like well maybe i should I don't know how it works. Maybe I will. I, I, he's like so confident about everything. And he's like, well, maybe let me go look at it and see how it works to try to figure it out. And then he, that's when we kind of launch ourselves on the tour of just the Asimov 2E computer or whatever we call it. <laughs> Still operates off wafers. Yeah. The funny thing that I thought is only one of the room has the wafer reader. It's like, well, he goes to the room. She's like, well, this one has the wafer reader, so it must be yours. And mine doesn't have wafer reading technology. Um, so that must be mine. And it was the one with the computer in it. The one that has the wafer is non the not computer room. And he's it's got like, his reader. It's like a laptop it. that still has a CD yeah. drive. Yeah. And that's sorry, the one this one that, doesn't uh, have a CD. The librarian this one gets. Have, <laughs> it's like, well, what what device is he putting this wafer into if it's not a computer? It's like and he's totally familiar with that concept. It's like a microfiche, I guess. <laughs> Just I mean, that's what I kind of think about, you know, like in the past, I mentioned the microfiche, right? That was my image of what Isimov had in mind. And that was when we were kids, Dan. Yeah. It was like, that's I how you microfiche. Went, did research at the library. There was no internet. Yeah. You scrolled through microfiche newspaper articles. You literally scrolled yeah. through like thumbnails of like <laughs> yeah. internet articles. This is interesting because... You know, in our first at the end of our first season, Brent kind of dropped a teaser on how Isimov, you know, handles computers and the idea that he was actually like very involved in the marketing of computers at Radio Shack and all this kind of stuff. For me, it's like I for me, it's like uh, I have like mixed feelings about it, because on one hand, I think he, you know, he steps beyond the tangible, beyond the the kind of logical technology, I guess, progression, like less hard sci-fi approach to describing the computer and more kind of semi-fantastical, like the idea that, you know, you put your hands on a desk and all of a sudden you're linked up to the computer and it's communicating with your brain waves and all this kind of stuff, but not as far as like the fantastical technologies of like the Dune universe, right? This is stuff that is like beyond explanation and it works because he doesn't go into detail, right? He's like, oh, there's this thing and and it just, that's how it works. And I'm not going to belabor the details of describing it 
So that makes it like a magical future thing that we have yet to experience or could be real in the future. With Isimov, he kind of, you know, he doesn't touch computers at all in the first three books, right? Which we're only covering the last 500 years from where we are today in this, you know, in the space chapter, if you will. And then now in the space chapter, he's talking about within one generation, this guy remembers like computers that were the size of a room. And then now all of a sudden they're hand mind control, you know, physiological response capability systems that can navigate the entire galaxy. Right. And only only the six richest kings in Europe could afford them originally. Right. And then now, you know, it's this super technology. So it makes me wonder, kind of going back, you know, to the first three books, like, how did they do all this stuff? Did they have like Mentats that were doing all the calculations for how to get into space? Uh, Abacus. They're all using slide Abacus. rules really quick to Abacus. make sure they can get into orbit. <laughs> So I thought it was interesting because I remember when he talked about like the three-dimensional maps and the and aligning the stars in the view with the stars in the map, right? And he talked about how there's like a little bit of misalignment because of not being able to calculate the effect of gravity on light waves or something like that. Like there's there's always this like imperfection almost human it's almost flawed because it doesn't quite overcome all the issues and i think there was something in this chapter as well where he's going through all this stuff and he's like navigating you know the ship out of the atmosphere and he's showing him the galaxy and all this kind of stuff but there was some like imperfection with connecting with the computer or something like that like i just thought it was interesting that he always kind of includes this flaw in the technology yeah he like acknowledges that there's like a 0.6 repeating out of the calculation or whatever <laughs> exactly in in hindsight like looking back on that 3d thing it just makes me think it's like an like a inverse like planetarium <laughs> and there's like some dude behind it like operating the gears and they're yeah, like, like oh, gyroscope. Yeah. yeah steve couldn't keep up fast enough because we couldn't account for all the the light distortion <laughs> Couldn't calculate it quickly enough. The other thing I found funny was that he always keeps talking about how the physical exertion required to operate it. And it's kind of, I, right. I didn't really get, I mean, I don't know if it's just because he doesn't know what he's doing. And is this like, is like a haptic feedback of the system? Like it's like making it hard for him. So it feels like it's big or something. I don't it's, know. It's a, it's a supercomputer, yeah. but it's an incredibly needy supercomputer. So that's to let you know how hard it's working for all the tasks. <laughs> like you're really, I mean, you're going to work with me on this. Yeah. One. I mean, really, I mean, this is such a burden for you to, I guess I could rotate the galaxy, but oh, such a pass. There, there's like a whole thing in, Flight controls, like when you have a human in the loop and they are using a lever or a knob or, you know, a steering wheel or something like that, everything is going to this fly-by-wire technology, which basically means that there's no mechanical linkages. There's simply an electrical feedback mechanism sensor built into whatever you're using that sends the, the required signal to the control system that actuates the actuators at the thing you're trying to to drive right move rotate um accelerate whatever the case may be but what happens is it's like it becomes like a computer game at the control console because you can push a joystick 
all the way or only a little bit, and it doesn't give you any kind of feedback if it's not built to do that. So they actually design in these kind of like this, hap I, get, I don't know if they call it haptics or it's like feedback mechanisms built into the control system that makes it feel like it's hard to push the lever. It's just friction, but it's friction replicating the mechanical feedback of hard linkages all the way back to your control surfaces so that the pilot knows he's applying pressure on the control surface one communicating way to you in like a physical exactly. way yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. But like instinctually you that know makes sense so you're not like you're not turning the titanic on a rack and pinion right. steering right exactly but i don't see what it has to do with like operating a computer well it's like when i was when Maybe i was a, it's kid, a similar concept right i never understood flight simulator at least the early days of microsoft flight simulator there's no physical feedback so you don't know if you're about to if you're near the ground if you're falling if you're right and to me that's the uh that's like the gap if you have no feedback in the system then you have this just kind of like you could be just driving the computer into a planet and you don't even realize it right yeah asimov flight simulator yeah. v, v 1.0 in 1981 <laughs> use of work <laughs> the Qatari flight simulator that asimov's honking the effort involved with and and the physicality of him trying to concentrate is is an interesting concept you know and it kind of makes me wonder if somehow his own brain and nervous system is being harnessed by the computer to help with the calculations or something like that like some you know it's like random access memory for the the actual machine you know right. and maybe not but that's like a cool yeah. idea right like a like a matrix type thing where he plugs it into the back of his neck yeah, and generating like the heat required to power it sort of like the hamster wheel except um the, the physical heart more physical harvesting you know they, they they mentioned a throwback right at the end of the chapter where he's like it did not occur to him to check whether there was anything special about any one of those ships was there one that was gravitic like his own and matched his trajectory more closely than chance would allow question mark and scene oh, yeah. chapter yeah, but think about it. Like, you've got Mr. Nervous, you know, never been on an airplane before, flying with you, right next to you. You got to calm him down. You're already in space. I could see the, the heat of the moment kind of clouding his vision. It was the heat of, of the, the moment. moment. Yes, yeah, exactly. But just to jump back, I did find the, the uh, section where he talks about what is the flaw with the shipboard computer. So... The spatial coordinates of every star in it must be in the computer's memory banks. And every star? Pellerat seemed awed. Well, perhaps not all 300 billion. It would include the stars shining down on populated planets, certainly. And probably every star of the special class K and brighter. That means about 75 billion at least. So it's like, you know, it's not a perfect... Uh, representation of the galaxy it's just got like some limited data with holes in it and it's like interpolating star locations and stuff and he's like imagining like oh i wonder which ones of these are real and which ones of these are like modeled by the computer so i just he keeps having these you know these these elements of kind of imperfection in the in the technology so Something important we did we missed is that the uh, the hunt for Earth starts to happen in this chapter. Yeah. 
Um, you know, we got introduced to the idea that this was part of what they were looking for, but we actually start to look in this chapter for it. And, and that's kind of where it comes out, right? Where he's talking about all the stars in the galaxy. And then you're right. He, he talks, he starts talking about, you know, how about all the old stars? And for some reason they think like all the old ones are in there. And as new ones get created, it might anticipate where they are, but it might not have all the new ones. But I thought back to when um, our boys, Han Pritcher and old What's-His-Face, Second Foundation, flying around the galaxy, and he like honed in on Tizenda, which was like hidden behind some area of the, of the sky mm-hmm. or something yeah. like that. The sky map, yeah. They had the, uh, what's called, wood-based economy or whatever. Right, the, and the, the very analog, analog world yeah. of the first three foundations. Travis also mentions that as confident as he feels with the computer, he's he's not sure like how, how good he'll be or how good he can integrate or control it or whatever. The, they first start talking about Earth, and what he's doing, they're looking at, yeah, he's giving them the tour of the solar system, and he volunteers, would you like to locate Earth? And Pellerat's like... Sure, yes. why not? And he's like, I'll try. And he's like, Oh, it's not there. He's like, It's not there. He said, oh, I might have missed out my command. It's more likely it's not listed. And then Pellet said, It may be listed under another name. And Teresa's like, What's the name? And he's like, Then he, the line is, is great. It's basically like, Pellerat said nothing, and in the darkness, Travis smiled. It occurred to him that th- things might just possibly be falling into place. Let it go for a while, let it ripen. He deliberately changed the subject and said, I wonder if we can manipulate time. It's kind of like a little foreshadowing. Trevi's character is sort of this guy who espouses the idea that the Second Foundation is sort of being meddled with, and there's a certain other aspect we're looking for, like the mule, who's kind of like looking for that, you know, surreptitiously just as, as like a science mission, but in actuality just to sort of like either eliminate or interfere with whether Javis is playing the same sort of game. And that was the first sort of inclination I got through that paragraph that like, you know, he's he's kind of using Pilaratus' pawn a little bit to get there. There is a parallel between Travis and Pritchard that I didn't, you know, see at first, right? Dan's insightful comments brought that to the surface for me. But it was it was some it was definitely something that I didn't catch the first time through, and I highlighted it like, oh, that was interesting. But just the verbiage of it, because I think I read it differently the first time, like it was Pellerat saying it, but when you think about it as Trevi saying it, it's like. So this is like the themes, right? The themes that we see. We've got two people in space, like exploring, right? We've had it over and over, time and time again. Two people going up into space looking for something, right? Um, we had it with Devers and Barr. Yeah. We had it with Pritcher and old what's his face that we can't remember. Bale Chanis. Bale Chanis. That's the guy. That's the guy. Bale Chanis. Chanis the Manis. Thank you. All right. Chanis the Manis. Yeah. Because somebody um, read behind. <laughs> <laughs> You've got it with uh, with uh, yeah, Arcady and the, old and the, the other librarian. Guy yeah. It's the librarian. Like, it's just guy. over and over again. So Homer Simpson. I mean, Homer. <laughs> yeah. Homer Bud. Homer Simpson. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Exactly. So this is like Asimov's, like, it, it must be his, like, medium, right? He needs two people in an isolated setting to, like, make story come out. In two men in a spaceship. Yeah. Well, there's also that, there's lots of one and twos, like, like, first foundation, second foundation. There's Trantor and Terminus. There's Bale Chanis and Hans Pritchard. A thing and its opposite, right? We've had this conversation, like, my, one of the, you know, the striking um, quotes of, 
and I'm sure Frank Herbert didn't get this from like his own brain without reading it somewhere else, but there's, there's probably some philosopher somewhere out there who goes into great depths to describe this. But he says at one point, it really struck me, a thing does not exist without its opposite. So we don't recognize light without dark. We don't recognize pain without pleasure or vice versa or whatever the case may be. So like the, the, if you talk about peace, you kind of insinuate war, this whole idea that things exist because of their opposite existing in the, in the counterpoint or the pointer count for some of us. Pointer um, <laughs> so I think that's like a very good, you know, it's like Lennon and McCartney and uh, you know, there's always this kind of like two sided picture of all this, these great things. And it always seems like Asimov definitely latches onto that idea. I, I think you're right there, Peter, that there's, there's things juxtaposed on purpose to, uh, to create that. It's like, it's like people, it's like people who smoke all of the time and people who smoke none of the time. Right. There's only two exactly. types of characters that you have in the Isomov universe. Not to, uh, not to break us off this rail, but I also noticed, and I don't know if you guys picked up on this, but Isomov contradicted himself semi elaborately in this chapter from the original foundation, right? The whole second foundation and the play about, you know, or the play on words with the uh, the other end of the galaxy and the the two ends of a double spiral. Um, he actually talks about Trantor, right? That it's not at the center of the galaxy, but it's as close to the center as a habitable system can be. So, I d it just struck me when he said that as like, oh, so like this whole play on words and stuff that he did back in the in the fifties, maybe he like learned more about astrophysics since then and didn't just like generalize the information he had in front of him and extrapolate it to, to the meaning he had created for himself back in the fifties. He actually understands more about the construct of a galaxy in the modern science of the 1980s versus the 1950s. So I thought that was an interesting revelation. So, yeah, so the uh, second foundation stuff. So we get introduced to um, Quindor Shantis and Stor Gandabal, uh, who are the, the first speaker and the newest uh, last, the last speaker. Yeah, the, the, the last speaker or the newest on the council, I should say. Um, and they have a, a meeting of of uh, minds, so to speak. And Gandabal presents the idea that there's a huge problem with the Selden plan to date because it lacks imperfection. Um, so uh, Jason, you want to go ahead and take it from here before I run through this whole plot again? I can jump in because you made me think of something that I didn't even realize until you said it is that I was talking about Isimov always introduces these kind of imperfections in the technology he talks about. But that's exactly the problem that that we're facing here in this chapter, right? Where yep. this antagonist to the first speaker who actually is really trying to like be a frenemy of the first speaker, it looks like, because he's competing for first speakerhood, but he's also needs... He's ambitious. First, he's ambitious, yeah. He's ambitious, right? Exactly. He's saying he wants to be a first speaker by the time he's 40. He wants to be the youngest ambitious. first speaker. Yeah. That the the previous title holder being Prim uh, Palver, which I got right. over, yeah, yeah, right. So the, before we even get into 
Jen um, Duvall and sort of his case, they, there's some interesting sort of se- second foundation inside baseball in the beginning part of the chapter where they talk about the golden rule of second foundation being do nothing unless you must. And when you act, must act, hesitate, you know, basically just, you know, you're just sort of watching bumper bowling, you're watching yeah. the ball and you want right. the, the, the bowlers to sort of bowl, but you have to make sure things don't go. Right. There's a following chapters. The other lane. These guys have upper management written all over them. Oh uh, yeah, exactly. Right. There's a Bob, like, there's a Bob, Bob Palmer and, and Bob, Bob Jendabal. Don't in, yeah. Don't involve yourself. <laughs> and when you feel like you have to involve yourself, hesitate. It's like, that's yeah, I mean, every it's thing, career right? bureaucrat you yeah. know, executive well, that I've ever. Well, would, if, if you make a decision, it could be the wrong decision. Exactly. Why would you not just exactly. run out the clock? Hire a consultant and have them make decisions. So there's what's that, called plausible deniability in your decision. You exactly. exactly. I'm a nub. I'm a, I'm a management. That's You're what with I me. Do. Yeah. But the the, the 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 next chapter reads is in the days of the great sack, the golden rule had been strained to the breaking point. There was no way of saving. Yeah, it's, it's no way of saving Tranter without sacrificing the Selden plan for establishing a second empire. It would have been humane to spare the forty-five billion, but they could not have been spared without retention of the core of the first empire, and that would have only delayed the reckoning. It would have led to a greater destruction some centuries later, and perhaps no second empire ever. And it's like, oh, just the forty-five billion. Then I was like, the, I was touching on my Dune sensibilities, where it's like the golden path, and it's like how many people yeah. died in the name of, you know, Paul's sort of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, initial intifada or whatever. And meanwhile, the great sack, the entirety of Tranter is destroyed. The second foundation is like, yeah, sorry about that. You know, forty-five yeah. billion people. 45 billion. Million. What's a few billion people between friends? Yeah, it's like drowning error. Rounding error, just the forty-five billion. I mean, you are having paid th- throwbacks back to, to the, you know, the sort of the the body count from Dune, just in the, in the idea of some greater. And then you start talking about, well, the second foundation. This is all for a good cause. And it's like, well, at which point are you are you sort of like a savage? <laughs> You're like, well, I could do something about that, but uh, you know, it could be it's going to be worse later if I don't do anything here. You know. Right. It's a lot of faith. It's a lot of ascetism to put in place to be like, well, staring. What, 26, 26 billion. Like, no, no, not yet. No, not yet. Yeah. Procrastinate. Like, 39 billion. Like, eh, like, no, not yeah. yet. Almost there. You know, 45 billion. Oh, that's just too many. This is ridiculous. You know, right. Where, where's the threshold? <laughs> yeah. For 47th billion person. Like, wow, well, this has gone on too far. Now we've yeah. crossed the line. You know, it's, it's like we talked about with the exterminating the second foundation right like 50 like oh yeah we definitely got them all that's could, ridiculous. it could be 75 that's like it could possibly be more <laughs> right. than 50 people meanwhile 45 billion people, yeah, die. people in territory, like, yeah. i guess it's like a statistical number they're like we need a significant number but not like that significant right so it's like three percent or like you know they've got six sigma or something like that they're figuring well, it's like yeah and they still talk about assassinating people right like these second foundationers i'm i'm still not convinced that like these guys are uh of pure pure intent because aside from the fact that they talk about assassinating you know we also thought that they were like these you know ascetic monks right and they deny themselves but then we've got like mr showboat here who's like super ambitious about the first foundation spot and he wants to be this you know go down in history as the youngest and it's like wait a minute these guys are supposed to be like full of self-denial and now it's like exposing this whole politics of the second foundation so i'm thinking like even more so than ever before 
why is the second foundation good? Like what, like, why is this a good thing for the future of humanity? Maybe they're screwing it up for everybody. Maybe they should be Hasidic mosques. I was going to say, (laughs) well, they're farmers. They're not, they don't wear the overcoats. Well, we get some interesting insight into their recruiting, right? Chandes, before Jenda Ball comes so there's a little bit of a, you know, some guy coming for the throne uh, of the of the first speaker. And he mentions back to, to Palver's day when Palver had a similar sort of meeting, you know, historical meeting when he was. And there was a young Cole Ben-Jome apparently came in when he was younger to sort of talk to him about, you know, whatever, some kind of circumstance. And I guess he became first speaker, too. But, you know, this it was like this. Yeah, there's a supportive relationship. Yeah, like the, the, right. The senior and junior speakers combining their power to help save the but universe, the, right? Like even going back to the great Prem Palver and the back 500 years ago, there's still palace intrigue, you know, between sort of like up and coming young people, and you know, and you're getting it like like Jay's saying, like you're getting a little bit of behind the scenes of what the first, fa- what the second foundation really is actually like, you know, it turns out. Okay. If, I mean, Chandes seems like he's like falling asleep, like sort of on the job. He doesn't seem like they're painting him. Like he's this, you know, he's going to go down history like Palver. And then Jindabal comes in and, and sort of smokes him logically. Um, you know, he comes in with a little bit. Oh, well, if you, if you look at the Selden plan acre by acre, like you don't know nothing. He seed, you know, and, uh, gender ball comes in and basically just like logically his his presentation is completely airtight and then shandis within a half of a chapter is now on his on his side and 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 it seems from the last words of the chapter that gender ball sort of makes his presentation wisdom to his side but still is savvy enough to be to in, intimate that he's going to use sort of use him as a pawn because he's the first speaker. It's like, allow him to do his dirty work. Mm-hmm. And then it's almost like he can come, come in with a bloodless coup at the end and use him up, have him do whatever he needs to do and then discard him at the end. It was very, struck me as a very sort of Machiavellian type figure. Yeah. It's, I'm so ambitious to have things work out. You know, it seems clear <laughs> from this inter- interaction that it's, there's not, they're not entirely selfless ascetic people. They have mm-hmm. their, he has his own sort of ambitions so it makes me question the whole premise, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I came away from this very, very much disenchanted. If this results in the Seldon plan working, then it would be great because they're all, they're all quote unquote on the same team. But it seems that there's some internecine rivalry that may or may not have to do with the overall arching theme of making the Seldon plan work. Sounds like it's headed to like tyrannical overlordship. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, at I, the same time, it's also interesting because I think it's good because they, it's like you're setting up another Asimov setting up another sort of thread, you know, where yep. you're questioning the always the second foundation. He's always just sort of assumed was benevolent, and now it's like, well, not so much, you know. So it had for me, it had the effect of reminding me of our like nuke, nucleic pillow, last great emperor, right? Was it was it Cleon? Was that Cleon? Cleon the second. I'm Cleon the sure second, it the, right? It was Cleo. Mid yeah, so Cleon. Cleon the second, you know, the last great emperor, he's got this kind of like political mastermind, right? That he is able to stay in power and he crushes his right hand man who tries to go out and get in with uh, Bel Rios and extend the empire or whatever. Um, but it's that kind of situation. It's like, you know, fighting for the seat at the top of society and this kind of like 
isolated class of power seekers, you know, segregated from the reality of the, of the galaxy. And I, I just got this kind of pang of familiarity with that, with that scene, which was the crumbling remnants of the empire. But now it's like the same thing's happening in supposed to be the up and coming future leaders of the second, uh, or the second galactic empire or something like that mm -hmm. mm. yeah well, it just seems like a taut conversation like just like i after this whole like meeting that they have i just imagine like my bowels turning to water after <laughs> every time i'd have to talk to my boss just be like it's like this like subtle like expressions and energy changes and they're like well i noticed like a slight tremble in your voice when you said that hiding your intention yeah, to yeah. usurp me like i just feel this like taut like steel cable in my gut like you know well, they're, they're like like for all you know like when you talked about the sudden foundation it's like if you're a regular person watching it you wouldn't actually hear anything they're like there's just nods and winks and like you know like mind beams and stuff it's like <laughs> are you having a seizure uh, no i'm just mm, sorry I'm just communicating with my fellow second foundation communicating yeah. with my eyebrows you know it's all <laughs> yeah. eyebrows those days like I think speaking of Mentats, who have like the comical second foundation giant eyebrow eyebrows, <laughs> like uh, Too Fear Huat in the first two yeah, movies. Yeah, yeah. If I can mean like Isomovian. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, uh, this, speaking from a man who knows something about eyebrows. But no, one of the things that even early in the chapter, it kind of throws to it. They talk about Tranter and, and you know, sort of like Tranter was the seat of the Empire at its peak. Tranter ran the Empire. It ran it poorly, but nothing could have run the Empire well. The Empire was too large to be run from a single world, even under the most dynamic of emperors. How could Tranter have helped but run it poorly when, in the ages of decay, the Imperial crown was traded back and forth by sly politicians and foolish incompetence, and the bureaucracy had become a subculture of corruptibles? Even at its worst, there was some self-propelled worth to the machinery. The Galactic Empire could not have been run without Tranter. The Empire crumbled steadily, but as long as Tranter remained Tranter, a core of the Empire remained and it retained an air of pride, a millennia of tradition of power and exaltation. Only when the unthinkable happened... You know, basically, only then was the empire considered to have fallen. So it was basically like, literally, the previous empire was just basically run by, like we were talking about with the Bill Rios time frame, a bunch of just, you know, power hungry whatevers. Then you sort of smash cut to the second foundation, theoretically unimpeachable, you know, X, Y, and Z. And now it's like, that actually comes into like a, a criticism I made in season one, which is like this, there's a structural issue with having one planet in the center mm -hmm. of the galaxy that's responsible for all the administration, oh. like from a command standpoint, Hub and spoke. Right. you know, the, the it doesn't work. Tyranny, raw tyranny to keep everybody in order, basically. Right. That's exactly. Force. Brute force. Yeah. And then I thought you were going to mention the other the other thing you said, Peter, in early in the podcast, which was about the corruptibility of the second foundationers, right? Didn't you talk about their, like, this setting of these kind of, like, fellow mind melters? It seems like all you need is somebody with a little bit slightly impure intentions, and it could, like, corrupt the whole system. Yeah. I, I don't know that I said that or if you said that. You, you said that. Oh, listen how smart I am. Speaking to somebody who's <laughs> impure as a man who operates the hub center of a corruptible enterprise. <laughs> I, I can recognize a similarly, similarly corruptible enterprise, you know. Exactly, exactly. I, I could be mistaken here. Very interesting. <laughs> in, structure. in this chapter, did they actually mention 
about like how, oh, well, you know, the plan is for the second foundation to kind of steer everything forward. And then we take over as leaders. I think they mentioned was I mistake. Was I mistaken? No, I think they restate that again yeah, so in this chapter. They, yeah, that's, they that's don't part, have that's part like of global intentions for setting up like a democratic or even a like a yeah. like true Republican yeah. government. They're just as power hungry. Like, right. Yeah, that's that's part, of pres, part of Gendable's presentation is the fact that you know uh, everybody's sort of waiting around for the Second Empire to show up so that they can take power. And it's right. like, well, the other people do, wanting the th things to move forward, they wanted to get here too because they want to take power too. They just assume. Second Foundation assumes that they're going to be, you know, the winners at the end of it. Then whoever the, you know, second and a half foundation that's fooling around, those people are in the same with the same end game in, in mind. You know, right. but they'll be the ultimate rulers. I don't know. We we got some interesting insight into their recruiting too, which is basically like like, oh, we found this kid and it seemed like he would work out pretty well. So we yep. you know, we indoctrinated him. And cult, it's like cult like indoctrination is the note that I wrote in my uh margins of my book here. Right. So then it's like, you know, I, we had this theory about like basically it being like a good breeding program where like you pass it down. Um, and it seems like there's some of that, but there's also they're also bringing in new life from the outside, which means that, you know, the the chances of there being somebody corruptible kind of coming in, you're, you're not dealing with, you know, Hasidic monks you're dealing with. <laughs> Now you've just got full circle on it. Ascetic, yeah. ascetic yes. monks, yes. They're Hasidic, as they, in people they, they low ascetic, they ascetic? No, ascetic, that they're low on the pH scale. Uh, oh, ascetic. 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 Yes, exactly. They're not basic. They're yeah. Not alkalinic. Yeah, yeah. Not alkaline. Yeah. Non-alkaline. Yeah. Monks. Yeah, well, basic. I mean, basics. No, it's, but I mean, it's funny. <laughs> Peter, even you're when, basic. Even <laughs> with a devastating human insult. You're devastated right now. <laughs> oh man like a 13 on the ph scale that guy uh, but one, it, what i was just checking back following up on it and they talk about it right before they meet him and jendabal like out and out says you know jendabal knew his opinion of the first speaker he felt the first speaker would be a man past his mental prime first speakers in general assessment expected no crisis was not trained to meet one and lacked the sharpness to deal with one if it appeared with all Shandis' goodwill and amiability, he was the stuff of which disaster was made. There seems to be this trend with uh, with Asimov where it's like there's some new upstart who instantly recognizes the incompetence of the old system, right? Like, um, you know, Hober Mallow, right? He was one. He, he manipulated the system to work for him, essentially. But he wasn't like part of the system you know han pritchard recognizing it and the mayor that like he's failing to act like there's just like this reoccurring theme of like oh like youthful eyes see what old arrogance doesn't right i've yet I, to I see i don't know if it's uh if it's old arrogance i think it's i think it's youthful arrogance perceives what let's not call it old let's call it like elder wisdom Right. Wizened elders. It's like the urgency to act. It's not as strong in somebody who's seen a lot more because I don't know why, but you're right. It's that's the case. It's like this juxtaposing youthful energy against kind of entrenched elders. They don't have an incentive to per continue the existing system. They have less of there's less built up in it for them so that they can say, well, look, I don't 
there's nothing. It's not like I spent my time and effort building the system, so I have a you know built-in nostalgia. Yeah, well, no, but that, I'm just looking at my bookshelf because I have a book. There's an economics book about that uh, that talks about the nature of systems and in, in an economy. It's like they build themselves up, and they most of what they go to is self-preservation rather than actually like you know in, inventing and moving things forward. They're just spending all their time and energy making sure that they they have their piece of the pie, and it's right. basically death sentence for a society and an economy. But that's sort of the nature of how these operations work. And you know, it's like. He probably thinks that he's probably like, well, he's first speaker, so he's probably going to be first speaker for a while, even if he's not capable or, you know, even if he's not the right person to move the settled plan forward, he's going to want to keep his job, you know, but right. I think I'm better at it than he is. And I mean, they, they mentioned him like not retiring or not like, oh, I'm, I can totally do this job for another 10 years, 20 yeah. years. So speaking of self-preservation, I would like to read the quote of how they describe the future of the, the galaxy, like the new galactic empire. So I think, uh, I think it's just part of uh, an explanation here, but I underlined this. It says, and the second empire would come, but it would not be like the first. It would be a federated empire. There would be none of the apparent strength and actual weakness of a unity centralized government or unitary centralized government. The new empire would be looser more pliant, more flexible, more capable of withstanding strain. And it would be guided always, always by the hidden men and women of the second foundation. Of course. It's, inter it's interesting, the idea of the Federation of Planets, you but know, from also Star Trek coming in. Secret society running the show behind the scenes everywhere. So it's like it's not centralized, but it kind of is centralized. Yeah, it's not overtly centralized. Not overtly it's, centralized. It's, it's covert. It's more, it's of a, it's more of a cabal than it is an actual Very much like, a cabal. The Republic, you know. Like a, like a shadow government. Yeah, it's know. more of a like an Illuminati kind yeah, of situation. Yeah, elders, Council of Elders, who might not be that old, judging by Mr. Gendabal here. So, yeah, it's like I am not, you know, feeling too great about the future of humanity under the second foundation. And then maybe we should just cut right to the punchline here because the whole thing is now they feel threatened that there's like a third foundation. A third foundation. They're getting second foundationed yeah. by a third foundation and they, and they don't even know it, right? Well, but I mean, Trevis seems to know it, and the mayor seems to know it, and now Jendabal seems to know it. He seems to convince, you know, Chandis that I mean, like, it's there's a couple people. You know, it's like any other concept in the society, like you know, individual people pop up and you know have the same idea, and then they kind of come together and start working on it. It seems like it's the, it was a, an idea that Trevis had in the second page of the book and it sounds like well this guy's just is basically just screwing things up and messing with congress and now it's like 100 pages in it's like well now he's got a coalition of like you know powerful people that are on the same boat and so now here we go so do you think that that first foundation or the the foundation is also the third foundation no no no, no. No, I think there's probably yeah. So they it's either a third foundation or a third acting hand, right? They they speculate the idea of like an anti mule. So instead of somebody who's trying to like take over the universe, they're trying to like be the soft guiding hand. I hear you, but at the same time, like I think we've they've uh, both Trevis and 
Gand- Gandalf, Gandabal, what's his name? Gandabal. Um, Gandabal. Gandabal the Grey. Have questioned the relevance of the the plan, right? Haven't they called it like the plan is meaningless? Right, Doesn't that come they, up? They don't see the deviations in the plan that would normally be expected, right? They they don't see the the lines, you know, branching out like as they should that would then like become extinct as you pass that point in time, right? Well, the other thing that's interesting is, is like it took them 500 years to realize that there's no branches. Are they just like too busy congratulating themselves about how awesome a job they're doing and uh, not be paying attention to what's going on? Uh, you know, it's like, oh, hey, you should have realized this 397 years ago that maybe like Wait you know, a, minute. a little bit too convenient, maybe. I mean, yeah, and Peter even said it early on, like, what's like, why is the mule bad, right? Like, right. He, his his objective is not very different from Second Foundation, apparently not very different from whatever this third force is that's now entered the scene. So my question to you, Dan, to bring it back to something tangible, you talked about Golan's kind of scheming aura in his reaction to Pellerat's questions about Earth and the changing name and all this kind of stuff. What, what do you... Am I understanding correctly that you think he is kind of like a mastermind behind some like third foundation type plot? Yeah, I was like, you... I was like, is he a, I, I thought I was like, is he a third foundationer? You know, is he sort of like, or is he, he's engaged with the group to sort of, you know, he's the mule of the third foundation where he's trying to find them out so he can snuff them out, right. you know? So his public outcry was like a, it was like a ruse. I'm not, I'm not sure it's he's one, he's somewhere in it, right? Whether he's sort of going there because he's like their number one fan and like wants to assist them, or whether he's like you know secretly trying to observe it because he wants to quash it out. You know, the characters that are there are involved, and you just don't know how they're going to be involved. So it seems like he's 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 leading up to being able to be somehow you know, a, a stakeholder in this third foundation organization, whoever it is, whether he's a protagonist or antagonist. Yeah. That's a good question. Like is, is, um, is he actually going to be trying to divert people from earth? Like, is he really an earthling, right? Is earth like the third foundation and they're just trying to like stay out of limelight as like this, you know, seed world that if they need to, they can always like repopulate the, the universe mm-hmm. and the galaxy. Cause they're not in the, they're not in the computer. Right. They're not in the machine. Right. So or is it like kind of like an aliens uh, Ridley Scott kind of universe where it's like, oh, Earth, like that place is like such a dump. Like we would never want to go there. That place is dead anyway. Yeah, exactly. Or is it that like Earth is actually like kind of trying to shape up the second foundation or the first foundation in a way so that they can come over and be like the original tyranny and like take over. Gandabal? What is it? Yeah, Gandabal. Is he in? Is he like a, a Trevise, a counterpart? Is he also kind of like potentially a third foundationer or whatever? No, I think he's just forces? a parallel. I think he's a parallel in the story, right? You have two young upstarts that are going to get themselves into trouble, right? That's kind of where I, I see that going, and I don't, mm-hmm. you know, as far as like who's going to win or I'm like to say who's going to okay. win. Just try like, to ferret think... out like what's this other force and who could be involved at this point. In the, in the I don't know. <clears throat> I, I feel early, like there may be hands to yet to be revealed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Pellerat maybe may know more than he's letting on. Sleeper. But well, I yeah. think in the next couple of chapters, I mean, like you're like twenty percent of the way through the book or so, or whatever, by by page count, and the first fifteen percent is just setting up the trip. 
And now it's right. like the really a first chapter or two where you're starting to see like, oh, well, right. you know, who are all these people and where do their allegiances lie? Um, so you know, it's exciting. I'm kind of you know looking. Yeah, no, it's it's good stuff so far. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing more of Gargamel. It's <laughs> Gargamel. That's Gargamel, the guy. Gargamel, thank, thank you. Like, yes, the guy. <laughs> yeah, <sighs> just, he's up there just stroke, stroking his cat. Just he's trying to turn Smurfs into gold. Yeah, exactly. You know? <laughs> that, that that might be very much where the second foundation's intentions lie as like a oh. just categorically evil dude just about wraps up this week i think we've beaten all we can out of these uh two <laughs> chapters <laughs> we have plenty to talk about next week so thank you all for coming tonight and uh i hope that you've enjoyed tonight it's been a lot of fun uh gentlemen thank you for your time and why don't you say good night to our audience good night to our audience Good night, audience. All right, guys. We'll see you next week. Love you. Bye-bye. Bye.